Hey, everybody, welcome back to Gear 30 on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right, on this truly monumental occasion, Sam Shaheen is back on Gear 30. This spring, Sam and four of his friends took on the very big challenge of an expedition on Denali. So in this conversation, we get the debrief right from the proverbial horse's mouth, and we talk to Sam about how the trip went, what he and his crew learned in the process, and we also talk about some of the gear he brought, and of that gear, what worked well and what didn't. I think you all are really going to enjoy this conversation, and next week, we are going to be talking about Denali and gear again, since our friend Andrew Alexander King was also on a Denali expedition not long after Sam. So we're going to be getting two different tales of Denali, and like we are doing in this episode, Andrew is going to be talking about some of his gear choices too. And if you happen to miss the conversation that I had with Andrew, well, we've actually had two on our Blister podcast. Well, in the first one, Andrew talks about his Between Two Worlds project, and I'm going to leave a link to that episode in the show notes of this episode, and I highly encourage you to check it out before we talk to Andrew for next Friday's Gear 30. And with that, it is time to welcome back everyone's second favorite host of Gear 30, Sam Shaheen. Here we go. Well, Sam Shaheen, how are you today and where are you today? I am doing excellent. Um, I am actually just moved. So I'm in my new house uh, in Denver. So I just moved up the street, but really (laughs) I've moved so much lately, but very happy with this this spot. This is going to be a good one. I was going to say, you definitely move more than anyone I know. No, it's awful. I, I don't know why I do this to myself. I just calculated since I since I left home for high school, this is the 13th house I've lived in or place I've lived in, and I'm only 31. So, I mean, like, you do the math. Seems to me people just don't want you living in their rental space or your roommates maybe just aren't big fans. Huh. Have you ever thought <laughs> of that? Lots of problems. Lots of problems. <laughs> well, anyway, we are happy to have you back. And I have to confess, having just talked about, you know, how nobody wants to live with you. I'm not kidding. In the last like seven to 10 days, I have had four or five different people be like, hey, uh, so where's Sam? And I'm, like, <laughs> I'm finally like, you know what? Sam's not that great. Don't worry about it. I don't know where Sam is right now. And uh, yeah, so I've got to say, and you know, it pains me to say it, but uh, the people have been wondering about you and and, and wanting some some Shaheen time, I think. (laughs) Well, that that makes me feel good. That makes me feel good. (laughs) Well, the excuse to get together for this conversation is um, you did something pretty cool this spring. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about what exactly you got up to and tell us a little bit like how long you've been thinking about this particular adventure. Yeah, I think Denali is kind of in the back of everyone's head a little bit and it's been in the back of my head for 
maybe 15 years, probably since I was, I was a teenager, just because it is such an amazingly beautiful mountain. I mean, I, I remember when I was in high school, I saw the photo that Ansel Adams took of the Denali Massif, that huge portrait or the, the huge like panorama one that that's all over the place. And that's, you know, that's kind of like the point of inspiration of like, oh man, someday, someday we'll get out there. And then you, you know, you start learning more about it. And I had some friends go and do other expeditions, you know, several times in the past. And every time was like, man, it's a really big time commitment. You know, it's taking a month off of work. It's, it's a huge training commitment. It's all this stuff. And this year we, you know, all the stars kind of aligned and we had a good group and got, was able to take the, take the time and we got up there and yeah, I mean, stars aligned is an understatement. Everything, everything was amazing. So how much decision-making was there really about exactly when to go routes and the rest? Is there much decision-making and predicting to do around that? Or is that actually more straightforward than one might imagine? Um, definitely not straightforward. <laughs> one of the biggest, one of the cruxes of the whole trip was planning and preparation and getting everyone on the same page, getting the group together, getting gear, deciding on flights, getting all the logistics down was a huge lift. Um, you know, we, our, our group was really focused on skiing. We were a strong skiing group and the goal of the entire trip was always to ski from the summit and to ski one of the big iconic lines, like the Mesner or the Orient Express. Um, so there was a whole lot of the logistics went into creating, creating the best possible opportunity for that to happen. Unfortunately, we didn't get to ski yet. Maybe, oh, spoiler alert, we didn't get to ski. <laughs> that, I mean, I would say that was probably 30% of the whole trip happened, like of the difficulties happened before we even, before we even got on a plane. And well, and, and I should, I should preface that too, by saying a lot of that's because we were all complete noobs to big mountains <laughs> and had learning. There's, there's a lot of learning to be done. Um, and it's a good thing we did that beforehand and not on the mountain so much. So let's talk a little bit about that. Like your own prior experience. Well, we know now that you'd never been up Denali before, but how would you talk about your experience and how that relates to going to, you know, attempt an adventure like this? Yeah, most of my experience is in skiing peaks and, you know, skiing peaks in the Alps and skiing peaks in Colorado and Western US, which is a pretty manageable paradigm. You know, I think in the Alps, you get a lot of, you get a lot of glacier travel and a lot of things like that, that you don't get, get here in, in, in the US quite as much. But, but it's, 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 it's a pretty manageable slice of pie to deal with, right? Like you're looking at a peak, you know that it's going to take X number of hours to get to the top because you have a certain number of feet or miles, whatever you have to do. And that's a pretty, a pretty, you know, easy thing to, to like wrap your head around, but moving, moving to a place in a mountain like Denali, where, you know, you're planning for not hours away from your house, but weeks in a tent away from everything. And the, the, the parallels when you're actually walking up the mountain, they hold pretty well, but everything else about it. It was so different. It was such an such a big learning experience, and um, you know, interestingly, we planned out we planned out 
everything as much as we could from, you know, food prep lists to everyone has their own gear list to, you know, who's going to be partnered with who, what the rope teams are, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, you know, routes, which camps you're going to stop out on which days, you know, in a perfect world. And the thing that ended up being the hardest or the, I, I should say one of the things that ended up surprising me and being extremely challenging was group dynamics. You know, one of these things that, that is almost impossible to plan for, but like it kind of shocked me. We have a really strong group. It's not like there were weak links or it's not like there were big social incompatibilities. It was just all these little things. We had a group of five. It's hard to get five people all on the exact same page. A lot of us had done a lot of, a lot of skiing and a lot of climbing with each, with each other in the past. Like we knew each other well, but you put, you put these people in this, like the pressure cooker of the big, of, you know, one of the biggest mountains in the world. And, uh, it was fascinating to kind of watch the, the social dynamics play out and to, to, to tackle those problems as like very important to, to us eventually summiting. I mean, given your experience with lodging that you've already detailed for us, I'm just imagining that some of the group was like, uh, Hey Sam, we're going to actually need you out of this tent by Monday morning. (laughs) Well, I, I will say that this, this all corroborates your theory because (laughs) before we even left, I was delegated the single tent. Everyone else had to share tents and I was, I was on my own from the start. So maybe, maybe that's telling. (laughs) I really don't know what to say about that, but I'm but I'm delighted to hear it. So thanks for yeah, thanks for sharing that. I mean, is there anything about the kind of group dynamics element that you you feel like you could share in a way that would be helpful or, you know, for somebody else who's out there and maybe they and their group are planning an expedition to wherever. Doesn't have to be Denali, but you were surprised that that was such a factor. Were there any kind of lessons or takeaways? Yeah. You know, I think my biggest takeaway is that I would not ever go on an expedition with five people again. I think five is too much. Unless, unless your group of five is, has, has a very, very, very clear and experienced leader. One of the main issues that, that we ran into was everyone is, was in our group was a very similar level of experience, similar level of fitness, similar level of risk tolerance. And because of that, there was no, there was no de facto leader. If there was someone who had been on a few expeditions before on our team, I don't think we would have had hardly any problems because we would have deferred to that person and they would have you know, told us what to do. But what, what ended up happening is every decision was decision by committee because everyone kind of had a platform to stand on relative to everyone else. So what ended up happening is a few days in, we realized that without a leader, we were totally screwed. And we held an election. You'll be happy to know that I won, Jonathan. Wow. <laughs> wow. And I got to tell everyone what to do for the next few weeks, which was quite fun. Sam, you were literally like, I was, I was born for this moment. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Everything I've always wanted. I want to hear your take on this. What you've just said on the one hand makes sense. But on the other hand, one of the drums we've been banging as like a backcountry community is like, everyone ought to have a voice, right? We've taught you, you've heard this, right? I mean, it's like, oh, 
no one should be afraid to speak up or if one person in a group, you know, on their way to a particular objective is feeling disease um, about what's happening or conditions, they need to speak up and be vocal. So what do you do with this? Are we in a, is this just a, I don't know, some sort of oxymoron here? Is it the rules change in AK? Like, how do you respond to that? No, I, I don't think the rules change at all on a big mountain. But I think that, I mean, I think there's there's a few factors. One is group size is always going to be a factor. And, you know, that's one of the things we've learned a lot in the past few years of avalanche education, right? Like we've learned that you can teach people the rules for ski this, don't ski this, this is avalanche terrain, this isn't. And they're relatively simple. But the thing that's really hard to teach is to how, how to tell someone to make a decision. How you have like, if you have mixed gender groups that like women tend to be less likely to speak up or the larger the group is, the less likely people are to speak up and all these things. So I think group size definitely plays just uh, a complicating factor. So with every, with every individual you add, you change the social dynamic and that is not, not probably the best thing. But I don't think that people were speaking up was the problem and as you know, when I became leader, <laughs> you needed him to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 less about having them shut up and much more about just having someone to say, "Okay, thank you for all of your input, and now I'm going to decide what's best and safest for the group, and synthesize all of your yep. your thoughts into action." Okay, as opposed to sitting here and talking about it for half an hour and not actually achieving much or getting much done. I don't know if you've said yet in this conversation, but I know it was true. You happen to time things well or just get real lucky in terms of cap catching a nice weather window. I mean, this let's I mean, we're still staying on group dynamics here for a second. We're going to get to gear, um, you know, in a moment. But as a leader of this thing, so this sounds pretty reasonable. So everybody kind of, you know, says their piece and then you kind of make a decision it's pretty easy to imagine a different experience on Denali where maybe the weather isn't cooperating as much or the you know snowpack isn't cooperating as much, et cetera, where there's one person that says, I just, I'm not about this at all. I think this is a bad move to keep going up, you know, or whatever, right? We need to turn around right now or we need to hunker down, et cetera. So, you know, now that you've led all of one expeditions in your life <laughs> with this grand amount of experience, what would you do? What would you have done in that case? Just overridden the person? I mean, I think it all it all depends on the situation. The way the way that the mountain is set up, you know, there's these relatively well established camps at various elevation points, and uh, they're in pretty safe spots. You know, I think if there was an absolutely massive avalanche, it could it could maybe impact camp 14 a bit if it came down certain certain different certain features but for the most part there are these safe zones and you know if someone's feeling uncomfortable i think the the answer is less like let's go home and more like let's figure out how to make that person comfortable because going home is a huge a huge endeavor <laughs> getting off the mountain is like a, a days long experience sometimes all right. So where are we in the narrative? <laughs> After a Lord of the Flies experience, you are nominated. I just threw that part in um, for flair, you know, 
But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you are, you are our mastering commander. I'm now I'm just overstating things, and also apparently naming other books and slash movies. So let me stop that. Tell us where we're going at this point. When it's like, okay, we need somebody to just say, "Cool, heard you all. This is what we're now doing." Where are you on the mountain when this happens? We had just gotten to we had just gotten to 14 camp, which is kind of where everyone sort of hangs out and stages summit attempts mm-hmm. from. Um, in general, you know, teams will go from 14, wait for a weather window, move to 17 when that weather window approaches, do a night of acclimatization at 17, and try and summit um, based on on you know when when, when it makes sense weather wise up there. So yeah, we had just gotten to to camp 14. Um, you know, we went and grabbed some caches and we're skiing around and just hanging out in camp 14 for a little while and doing some acclimatization stuff. We actually got to ski some really good snow outside of camp 14 on one day. That was about it in terms of skiing good snow for the trip, unfortunately. Um, yeah. And then, and then it turned to figuring out summit days after, after we started to get a little bit acclimatized and that enters the other, one of the other big factors, which was really challenging was weather and not necessarily what the weather was doing, but figuring out what the, or predicting what the weather was going to do. Yeah. Um, the weather forecasts were all over the place and they were terrible, like not even remotely close, at least the national weather service ones weren't, um, and if I went back, I would definitely change the way we handled weather. But um, that was that was pretty fascinating. Can you say more on that? What would you do different with respect to handling weather? Well, so what we learned while we were up there is that a bunch of people hire meteorologists. There's one in Denver that gets hired pretty often, I guess. So you pay this guy a couple hundred bucks and he gives you forecasts twice a day to your inReach. And those forecasts were actually accurate. Um, whereas the National Weather Service ones that they broadcast out on, over the radio every night were really, really bad. And so like we were we were sitting here like texting people on the inReach trying to get weather forecasts off the internet that was different than NWS, and those are all over the place too. But knowing what the weather was going to do is a big crux. And obviously, like, it's really hard to predict the weather. The mountain makes its own weather. It's all over the place. But yeah, knowing weather and knowing when the weather windows are going to be with a little more certainty than we had would have been really nice. What's the elevation of Camp 14? 14,000 feet. You can see there's kind of a naming system. So you're hanging out at Camp 14 at 14,000 feet. How long... Are you there before you attempt a summit? We, well, let's see. We summited on our 11th or 12th day on the glacier. I can't remember if it was 11 or 12. And we got to camp 14 on day seven. So that would be, yeah, four, four to five, four or five days. Um, that said, though, the plan wasn't to go that quickly. I think, you know, we summited really fast we had a really good acclimatization. Um, you know, our the day that I summited, it was just me and one other member of the group. The other three did not summit that day. They summited later. We didn't plan to summit. We had planned to go do an acclimatization day, go up to camp at 17 and hang out there for a little bit. You know, the what if the weather was good, maybe go a little higher, but you know, we weren't planning on 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 going to the summit cuz I mean, frankly, we hadn't acclimatized. 
we were not there yet. And the the anticipation was that we would get up to 17 or get up above camp 17 and like not be feeling great. But we didn't, we got up there. We felt really, really good. We just sort of kept walking and we never didn't feel good. And we got all the way up um, unexpected and in, on one of the most beautiful weather days you could ever ask for. Not a breath of wind. Wow. Clouds are down at like, you know, six, 7,000 feet and they're, they're, they're all dispersed too. So it's just so dramatic and beautiful. There were, there were <laughs> airplanes that were, that were like cruising by the summit all day, like fighter jets and various military planes and then commercial jets too, that were just like cruising right over the top of the mountain. Cause it was so beautiful. Um, it was, it was really special. Wow. Okay. So sorry, just to make sure I'm clear. So you go from, you didn't do this in one day. You went from Camp 14 to Summit in a day? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so that means you're topping out around 20,300 feet? Yeah, so it's a pretty it's a pretty big day vert wise and and you know we had we this was kind of the plan initially cuz the ski lines all empty into to Camp 14. So we had wanted to to go from 14, get to the summit in a day and then ski back to ski back to camp. So that was kind of what all the training was done. All the training was done with that in mind, you know? Um, you know, unfortunately the snow conditions were just absolutely abysmal. And, you know, we, we went up, up and tried to ski one of the lines a few days after we summited cause we didn't bring skis on, on our summit attempt. And just, you know, it's one turn of blue ice. The next turn is unconsolidated sugar over blue ice. The next turn is breaker crust over unconsolidated sugar and then another turn that's like you know uh just dust over blue ice i mean it was it was super dangerous and some of the most challenging conditions i've ever skied in my life um so we didn't get to ski which is kind of a bummer but um when jacob and i summited we did go from 14 and then back to camp 14 at the end of the day how long was that round trip um we did it about 16 and a half hours i think and we weren't moving very fast, but we also didn't take a, take a bunch of time like for lunch and whatnot. It was just kind of like the slow plod. Yep. It's one foot in front of the other, real, real slow. And is part of the reason, I mean, in part because you sort of kept expecting, like, it's, we're not going to feel that great real soon. Was that kind of the thinking? Definitely part of it. Um, but also I don't think I could have gone much faster. <laughs> when I got back to camp, when I got back to camp, I was like, this is the tiredest I've ever been after a day huh. in the mountains. Like I was absolutely wiped. Huh. <laughs> so, okay. On this day then, what time do you start? And then you're back to camp 14 at what time? Yeah, we started at like 6.30. I guess actually I started a half an hour later than Jacob. So I did it half huh. an hour faster. Take oh, that. Yeah, <laughs> screw that guy. I started about 6.30 and then we got back to camp at like yeah 11 or something. You can do the math, but pretty late. We summited about 5.30. Okay, you summited about 5.30. How long did you hang out on the summit for? Probably about... 20 minutes, huh. half an hour, maybe huh. it was so beautiful. I mean, the air temperature is probably, it's probably minus 20, minus 15, something like that. But the sun is so strong up there that 
you know, we were on the summit in liner gloves, not like no parka, no puffy at all. Wow. My feet in my ski boots and my, and my gaiters were just sweating uncontrollably the entire summit day. Really should have taken those gaiters off. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then you come back down to camp and then the others in your group, they go up the next morning, I take it. No, actually. So the others went up a day or two later, not the next day, at least one day later. And they they camped at 17 and summited from 17 and then went back to 17, um, which is definitely, you know, we were getting towards the end of the weather window, which was mega. I mean, it, we had basically six days where people summited every single day in that six-day window. But we were getting to the end of that window and, you know, it's much more of a surefire thing if you go to 17. You might have the fitness to go from 14, but if you don't for some reason and you you blow your summit day weather-wise trying to, you know, do something unnecessarily hard, I think you'd be pretty pretty disappointed when you got back home. So they went to 17. I think that was the right call for them um, and got to summit a few days after we did. I'm slightly surprised you didn't go back up. <laughs> there Come was on, there Sam. was definitely some pressure for me to go back up. I I we had a plan. We had a plan for me to go back up. Um we had made this plan. I was going to go up with Tommy and Marielle, two of the other team members. I was going to go up with them to 17 and summit with them after my first summit because John, the other guy, wanted to go from Camp 14. And so we had this whole plan, and we got as far as packing up all of the tent and everything to get up there, and we were all stuffing backpacks before we bailed, and we're like, no, this doesn't make sense. Um, so I almost I almost, I almost, almost went for two summit bids, which would have been really awful. It would have been so, so <laughs> exhausting. <laughs> Wait, what, what happened to interrupt? You said this doesn't make sense. Why not? Just from a, your, your own physical point of view or there were other no no it 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 was not my decision to go if it were up to me we would have gone um one of the other members of the team didn't want to go um for for other reasons i think there's a there were a litany of reasons he didn't want to go but um i think at the end of the day it was the right decision because you know there was definitely a little bit of of just apprehension about camp 17 in our group partially because it's really, really, really cold up there. And most of the accidents and frostbite cases and things like that happen at 17. And I think there was like this idea in the group that we didn't need to go. We didn't need to go to 17. We were going to be fine going from 14 because we're all real fit and blah, 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 which was which was probably true. But then there's also this, this factor of conservative decision-making and not yeah. necessarily conservative in terms of safety, but conservative in terms of like what decisions are going to give you the best opportunity to summit because we have sunk eight months of planning and four weeks on this mountain and we have all the opportunity to do it. Just how are we going to make sure that we get everyone on the top? Yeah. And I I think that's good. I worry a little bit, I suppose, in this conversation that others maybe listening to this might be thinking like, I don't know, well, Sam and some friends did it. That seems pretty cool. And I, I think some of the things you've said in the last minutes there maybe bring might bring some people back to reality right i mean you all sound pretty you sound pretty even keel about all of this but like this is this is this is a big undertaking right 
that happened to go well for you. And, you know, perhaps you guys made some very sound decisions along the way, but like, this is a big undertaking. Oh, oh, a massive undertaking. I mean, I can't underscore that enough. And we got really lucky. We made good decisions. We had, we had a strong group that was fit. We had all the right gear. We hit the weather window of all weather windows and we, we were able to summit. But that was definitely not the case for everyone. Like, for example, there was a, a group, um, a group led, led by, or led by, I don't know, but we met up with them on the, on the way out, um, on the plane, um, Sam Cohen, who's a Scott athlete, pro skier, you know, really, really strong skier, really fit guy. And their group didn't summit, you know, um, people who do this for a living, not, not all of them summited, you know, and, uh, the, the summit rate for non-guided parties on Denali is about like high thirties, 38, 39%, I think, which is not very high. Wow. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we'll announce at this point that Sam is, uh, now starting his Denali guiding service. So you hire oh, Sam, no. you hire Sam and then that one forecaster from Denver and Sam will, <laughs> Sam will guarantee you'll have a, you're guaranteed to summit uh, or your money back. So Sam, yeah, excited to announce this new business of yours on this podcast. <laughs> well, I, I the, you, you bring up an interesting thing that, that we talked about a lot, which was the guided, the guided parties. Now there's a lot of guiding that goes on in this mountain, but you know, we started, we started calling the guided groups, the Chinese military, because it was, it was so regimented. The guides would, the guides would tell everyone exactly like, put your tent here, wear this layer in the morning, switch to this layer. When we take this break, we're going to stop at this spot and this spot and this spot and nowhere else. And we're going to take a 10 minute break here and a six minute break here and a quick stop for water here. And like, it was amazing to watch, but they have a lot higher summit rate because they have these really strong leaders and everyone else just does exactly what they say. And I think that, that is the key to them being so successful that and the fact that the guides obviously know the mountain super well they have the best possible weather forecasting and they know the right gear and the food and all that stuff which goes a long way too speaking of gear let's talk about it yeah i mean this was a pretty <laughs> safe to say pretty different deal for you i will say to your credit you know i i try not to give you credit when i don't have to sam but i would say that <laughs> i would say that you are quite a versatile skier, certainly, right? With kind of a park background that then sort of moved into more all mountain and some big mountain skiing. And then, you know, with more of a focus on backcountry skiing. And so now you're trying your hand at some expedition style, I guess, you know, not really skiing in this case, but still, I'd love to hear you just explain your own thinking in terms of some of the gear you brought and how, what seems so different about that gear maybe from some of the other stuff you would normally be doing. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, th the, the, the thinking behind it was pretty straightforward. It was don't get frostbite at all costs. Don't get frostbite. <laughs> yeah. Like, don't underdo the really important things. Like don't underdo your mitts. Don't underdo your feet. Don't underdo like expedition parka, headwear, all that stuff. You know, I, I brought 
so much warm gear and that was super super clutch and even then like i i wish like i didn't bring a sleeping bag liner i would bring a, a bag liner if i went again i was able to borrow one from someone who was who had a minus 40 bag on our team and didn't didn't need the liner um but yeah in general the thinking behind gear was very different from what my normal thinking of gears and usually like the night before a, a, a big day i'll think like okay what am i going to need what is the lightest version of what I'm going to need so that I can move as quickly as possible? Because, you know, one of the things that, that, that I take into account when I think about my safety in the mountains is gear, preparedness, snow conditions, group, all that stuff contributes, but a big contributor to is speed. The faster you can go, the, the, the bigger margins you have on weather, the faster you can go, the bigger margins you have on snow conditions and, you know, late day warming and all that kind of stuff. So moving to the expedition space, though, very much not like that. It was bring way more than you think you need. And I did bring more than I thought I needed. And I didn't bring enough. <laughs> so what'd you do? Well, I came really, really close to bringing enough. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it wasn't that big a deal. <laughs> You're like, I was 98.8% of the way there. <laughs> Yeah, just a few little things like yeah, bag liner, bag liner. I, I would have brought more um, if I if I were to go back. So my ski setup. Let's let's, let's talk gear. Let's talk specific gear. Okay, I brought um, Solomon Mountain Explore ninety fives, which anyone who has ever listened yep. to anything I've ever said on this podcast should not be surprised by. Hmm. Interestingly, though, I all throughout all my training, I was planning on bringing the Scott Super Guide ninety five, the new one. And I've been, I skied with that all year leading up to Alaska. And I really like that ski. I had a great experience on, I had that ski mounted with the ATK R12. Yep. Which is a binding that at the beginning of the season, I really liked. And then right before Alaska, I had some bad experiences with the ski and with the binding. And I was like, nope, nope. I'm going back to my, going back to my, my mountain explorers with the ATK Raider 12. Um, and I can't. I can't say enough how good that ski is and how good that binding is. I would take the exact same ski binding combo again in a, in a heartbeat. Yeah. And um, Luke and I have been singing the praises of that ATK 12 ourselves too, in case anybody wants to know a non-Denali opinion on that binding. But yeah, we've had really, really good success with that binding, several of us in several different like literal models, right? I mean, we're we're skiing a several different pairs of that same binding on a number of different skis and we're fans. Yeah, well, I'll 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 tell you what happened. You you'll you'll probably enjoy this story because it makes me <laughs> like an idiot. Perfect. Can't wait. <laughs> so we were skiing this line. And, uh, the line we tried to ski was like all bare, you know, Colorado had such a bad snow year this year. So there just wasn't a lot of snow up high. So we had to go to this alternative line and there's a big cornice kind of, you know, guarding the top of it. So, you know, I are on like a little ski pole belay and I'm trying to stomp the cornice to break it off so we can have a little entrance and I'm kind of, you know, stomp, stomp, stomp. Anyway, didn't lock out the toe of my binding, which I obviously should have, but lose the ski Oh, dude. Flies over the cornice into the into the line and like around <laughs> this corner, this like big rock buttress. So we couldn't see where it was. And as far as I know, it's like at the car, you know, like all the way down. <laughs> and so like 
so we, you know, we get the cornice taken care of pretty well. And, um, and you know, everyone, a few people, or no, I actually went in first, um, on one ski, like side slipping down this cornice. It was, it was hilarious. There's some really good pictures of it on my phone, but, uh, <laughs> um, it all, it all ended up working out. My ski ended up stopping just below that rock butcher. So I was able to, to ski down the rest of the way. Um, it, it wasn't an exposed line or a steep line or really anything of much consequence, but just the whole thing of like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to stomp this cornice off, make this line way safer. Like, oh, nope, made it way more dangerous. <laughs> yeah, <good job>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I'm not going to say here that the binding malfunctioned. It's just the lesson maybe is if you're going to go cornice stomping, you might want to lock the toe out. Yeah, 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 and it was it, it was it was much less a binding decision than it was a ski decision. Yeah, that Scott Superguy ninety five is a great ski, but it's just less forgiving than the Mountain Explorer, and you don't really get anything extra in terms of like ski mountaineering performance. In bounds, the Superguy ninety five might be my 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 better choice, but in terms of being actually like on a big mountain in the backcountry, whatever, I'll take forgiving yep. over powerful almost every time. And the Mountain Explorer 95 is still really powerful. Yeah. Especially for its weight, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was mostly a ski decision. Do you know off the top of your head the weight differences between those two skis? They're super similar. They both kind of fall in the mid 1400 grams. The, but the, that's for a 184 in the Mountain Explorer 95 and a 178 in the Superguide 95. So the Superguide, like centimeter for centimeter, I believe is a bit heavier. Okay. Interesting. Man, that's Solomon. That's ski. I, I, I don't even want to say it because this means I'm not going to say it because this means I'm going to jinx it. Just going to point out that that ski has been really good for quite a long while now. Just stop. Jonathan, just that's, stop. Sorry. Just stop. You're going to say something and no. someone in Solomon is going to hear it and then, and then it's all going to be over. <laughs> I know. It's crazy to me. Crazy to me, but true. So we should move on. Okay. So let's talk about boots. Let's talk about what was actually on your feet on Denali Ooh, yeah. and what the thinking was around that. So also probably unsurprising to anyone who has any familiarity with my gear choices Scarpa Mistrale RS was the boot. Um, and it's probably one of the pieces of gear that I would be the quickest to change. Interesting. Because we didn't get to ski. I mean, I summited wearing ski boots that are 1,400 grams when I could have summited wearing ski boots that are 900 grams. Like a pound a foot. Okay, but wait a sec. You can't know that going in. No. And, and this was very much, you know, this expedition was very much about skiing down. So that didn't end up happening, but there is, I mean, I just like to clarify these things, right? I mean, given what you were trying to do, right? And if the group was like, I don't know, maybe we ski down, but don't, we don't really care about that. So if it, you know, if that doesn't really happen, we don't really care, just to try to clarify in the decision-making, that is when you maybe would have started with a 900-gram boot. Fair? Yeah, yeah. But also, also, I think given the group's goals and with 2020 hindsight, even if we were going to hit perfect snow conditions, I still probably would have gone with a lighter weight boot, like a 
alien okay, RS okay, or something. Okay, you said perfect conditions. I don't know that anybody ought to start out <laughs> up Denali and just assuming they're going to get perfect conditions on the way down. So, yeah. I mean, this is, I want to push you on this because I think it's a really good question, right? I mean, yeah, a 1400 gram boot versus a 900 and versus something like the Alien, which is a beloved boot, right? By a lot of folks. Um, I don't know. Let's, so let's come back on this. You're saying, let's say next year you were going to sort of replicate the same trip, right? Yep. Are you saying next year, even if the idea is again to ski down, you still would swap out the boots and just simply start lighter? 100%. I would okay. because there's so much walking. There's so <laughs> much walking and and it's walking with crampons and it's walking with gaiters. Like I, your, your feet are heavy. They're heavier than anything that I do around here, you know, around, around Colorado, I try and avoid crampons at all costs. And here it was every time I wasn't skinning, I had them on the, the added safety that you're going to get from being fresher on the ski is way, and in, in my opinion, at least going to be way more important than having a little bit more support in your boot. Yeah, I think that's fair. Hmm. <laughs> Okay, so let's say you are doing this. You got to go back next year, same time frame, et cetera. And again, we're you know you're going back again to put some turns down. So, do you know today, right now, what your first choice boot would be, or are there some other things you've seen that are maybe just got released, or you know they've been teased or something? How how certain are you that you know what boot you would bring with you next year? You know, I'm pretty certain it would be the Alien RS. Mostly, I mean, full disclosure, I haven't worn that boot. Um, another member of our team had that boot on Denali. He loved it. But I know that the Scarpa, the Scarpa boots tend to fit my feet pretty well. Um, and the fit is so important. So that, like, re- regardless of, of, of performance getting the fit right so that, you know, you have full circulation on top of everything else. So you don't lose all your toes. I'm pretty sure I would go, I would start, I I should say I would start with the alien RS and then see if I can make that work for me. Okay. And just to clarify, you know, you were, your brain spent some time not too long ago at high altitude. And so you might be messed up here, Sam. And I want to just clarify, are you Really talking about the what is now discontinued Alien RS? Are you, is that the boot you have in mind, or are you talking about Scarpa's like the replacement for that Alien, the F1 LT? Yeah, yeah, no, you're totally right. I'm scrambled all over the place. Hmm. I am talking about the F1 LT. So Jacob and our group had the F1 LT. The Alien RS, yeah, great boot discontinued, but essentially replaced by this F1 LT. Um, actually, we did a podcast with with Scarpa about this boot when they, when they released it. So you can go listen to that if you want. But um, of course, of course I did that podcast. I can't remember the name of the stupid boot. <laughs> yeah. This is ah, Sam. I love this. This conversation has really like, really like, you know, kind of shined a light on the good attributes of you, but it's also had nice dashes of Sam screw ups. So thank God <laughs> this just isn't. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm, 
there's a lot of good stuff you've done, you know, in this, in this episode. So those, I feel like those little, those hiccups are for me <laughs> mostly. Good, um, good, good. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's exactly why I did it to make you feel better. Appreciate that. <laughs> and we should say, I mean, Paul forward um, has been putting some time in that F1 LT. And now here's my chance, even though I have not been hanging out at 20,000 feet, I'm not sure off the top of my head, if Paul has written anything on the site about that yet so we're we're both having senior moments right now sam but uh (laughs) we'll we'll get we'll get clear on that if paul has we will put a link to that in the show notes to this episode and if he hasn't we'll be like yo paul tell us what's going on here so anyway this really is a significant thing i mean that alien rs was just a beloved product and that, yeah, and that was one time, like, I didn't ski that boot. So, for one time, a, a product that was, like, had, like, a universal approval rating got changed, and it wasn't one that I was out there touting. So, it see, it does sometimes happen. It does sometimes <laughs> happen to other people, too, Sam. Well, and, and you know, anecdotally, I've, I have heard extremely good things about the F1LT, um, that it's, it's a... Well, I I won't speculate. I'll just say I've heard good things. Okay. Okay. What other gear should we talk about? Well, we can talk about my favorite piece of gear Mm. from the trip, which was um, the Patagonia Grade 7 Down Parka. By far the warmest jacket I have ever worn. But it was it was one of these jackets that I just like immediately. Granted, this is this is like the inner the inner apparel nerd in yeah. me coming out. I just had like an emotional connection to it. Like it showed up at my house, and I was like, I love this jacket. <laughs> and wait, this wasn't the big silver one, was it? No, 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 no. Okay, no, because no, this, looked... this one is black and understated. Oh, because you looked hilarious in the big silver thing. Yeah. That I, I love that jacket too, but <laughs> in a different way. Okay. Okay. So say more. Yes. I mean, you know, and, and as, as the expedition went on, I loved it more and more, you know, for one, it does its job really well. It's warm. It's simple. It's really easy to operate. It's got a big chunky zipper on the front. That's that goes really smooth. It's easy to operate in gloves. Um, when it gets rhyme on it, there's no problems. There's tons of inner compartments to warm stuff. We are always like, everything is always freezing. So it's like you wake up in the morning and you put, okay, well, we need the Nutella to warm up so we can do breakfast. You put the Nutella in there. You need the sausage to warm up at dinner so you can cut it. And then you put the sausage in there, you know, so there's water bottles. Everything is always, always stuff inside jackets. But more than anything, the, the the parka is kind of like this this lifeline almost. It's like your your emergency piece of gear that you actually really really need. And so it's one of these things that it's always in your pack, even on just the little acclimatization stuff. And uh, it just it just it just became became almost like a security blanket for me having that that parka in there. And it was it was it was an excellent an excellent expedition parka objectively, and then more subjectively one of my good friends on the mountain. (laughs) Oh, man. See, ladies and gentlemen, when you get kicked out of where you live all the time, um, you have to just become (laughs) friends with inanimate objects. So, uh, yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, this is Sam's version of Wilson the volleyball from Castaway. So, how packable is this thing? Not very packable. I was going to say. Okay. It's really big, yeah. (laughs) 
jacket. It's really, really big. <laughs> the jacket is the big spoon in this relationship. Oh, yeah. Definitely. <laughs> um, I don't mind big little spoon, though. <laughs> <laughs> that really makes me want to ask about other aspects of your life that uh, we haven't been updated on in a while. But, uh, you know. Maybe that's a different. Maybe that's a that's different a diff- podcast. That's a different podcast. We, we don't want someone to accidentally click on this podcast and get that. <laughs> okay. Okay. So we've had the boot conversation. We've had the ski and binding conversation. We've talked about your best friend on the mountain, a parka. I'm not going to give you too much crap about that one. I think uh, when you preface this by saying the very first concern is don't get frostbite, I'd I'd probably want to be real good friends with my parka too. But maybe before we wrap this up, any other one or two pieces of gear that you either knew were going to be critically important coming in or that you actually realized once you were on this adventure just how critically important they were? Yeah, I'm going to talk about I'm going to talk about sunglasses. Wow. Okay. Cuz it's one of the few pieces of gear that Everyone on the team brought two pairs of, so full backup. Um, Because there's really, you know, your sunglasses break. It's so bright out there. Like, you just go home. Um, I wore wore a pair of Sunski Tree Lines, which was an interesting choice because there's, you you, you, kind of go full glacier glasses with, you know, like the, 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 big side shields, the big block in the front, like over the bridge of your nose that block a ton of sun. And you have, you know, everything from that, you can do ski goggles, you can do a more traditional, like pair of sunglasses that don't have all the side shields and the tree lines kind of sit in the middle somewhere. Um, They have side shields, but they're not super big and they're perforated. You know, I, I had been skiing all year leading up to it with my buddy Jacob and he had one of these, you know, the jewel blow, the jewel blow ones with the leather side shields and, um, are, they're very protective, but he, he was having fogging issues a lot. And I've been wearing my Oakley M frames from my 13th birthday (laughs) present from my dad. They're carbon fiber, carbon fiber painted frames. They're awesome. (laughs) Um, I've been wearing those and getting some eye fatigue after days. Um, so I wanted more protection than that. And what I ended up doing is finding these Sunski tree lines. They're super affordable at $89 and they were just about perfect. I never fogged once and they were, they were a perfect level of, 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 of protection where I didn't get a bunch of eye fatigue. I, my backup pair was a pair of Ombras, which are the ones we feature these on the site a handful of times, but they're the ones with, instead of, instead of ear pieces, like plastic ear pieces, they have a cord that wraps around the back of your head. Mm-hmm. And that was a great backup pair of sunglasses because they're super packable. They're really lightweight and uh, they're just really easy to, 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 to deal with. So I ended up wearing those around camp a whole bunch. The other thing that I that I didn't do in terms of sunglasses that I wish I'd have done beforehand, I ended up doing it on the mountain, was a nose guard. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the UV is so strong up there and I just spent three weeks straight with zinc oxide caked all over my face. But even even that can't keep your sun your nose from getting sunburnt. So, um, you know, every everyone up there pretty much wears these hilarious looking nose guards. They're so dumb looking. 
But yeah, I, I constructed one on the mountain and super clutch to have it go under your nose. So you, the bottom of my nose didn't get sunburned because it that's impossible to keep sunscreen on because you're like, you're like snot is coming out because you're working and it's really cold. And then every time you rub the snot away, you rub the sunscreen away and then you, and then it gets sunburned. So then it hurts every time you do it too. And then like you just end up, you know, it's just, it's a vicious cycle. My nose was destroyed. The tip of my tongue got sunburned. I couldn't taste anything for like two weeks after I got back. Anyway, I digress. Wow. You, how did you sunburn your tongue? Were you going Michael Jordan style, like up to the <laughs> summit, like tongue wagon? We we all pretty much sunburned our tongues and we didn't realize it till we got back to civilization because, you know, we'd been eating, I mean, we ate pretty good food, but it wasn't incredibly spiced or anything like that. So the fact that we couldn't taste too out there was a little hard to notice. But yeah, just because if your mouth is open, you breathe through your mm-hmm. mouth, there's so much reflection wow. that the tip, of, yeah, the tip of the tongue. Okay. Hard, hard to sunscreen that. Plus, I get to call you mouth breather now. I am a mouth breather. <laughs> My dentist always tells me that. <laughs> At that altitude, I promise you I would be too. Tell me you have a picture of this nose guard concoction of yours. Yeah. Yeah, I do. We, uh, I made it out of <laughs> duct tape and foam with some bailing wire. Actually, I made a really good nose guard. It, it was like... Oh, now it's coming out. And it, I spent a lot of time on it. It ended up really good. But the duct tape we had was... Uh, unicorn printed duct tape. So it's, there's a big unicorn on the front of my nose guard, which, you know, is what it is. Okay. We but, uh, have to have a photo of this to publish I'll, along, I'll along send, with this. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll send you the photo. <laughs> Perfect. And of course, of course there was unicorns on your duct tape. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we have fun. We have fun. <laughs> um, what else should we talk about before I let you go? Well, here, 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 here's a good closing story. You know, a lot of climbing mountains is serious, and uh, but it's not all serious. <laughs> so the day after, the day after we summited, Jacob and I are like, we are, um, we're celebrating. You know, we are, we are, we are enjoying some some whiskey or maybe a lot of whiskey, and uh, it's late in the afternoon, like two or three, three, three or four p.m., something like that. And, you know, we're, we're not sober and Jacob comes into our cook tent and he's like, he's like, Hey, I heard that there's um, someone giving away hot dogs. I'm like, yeah, right. No one's giving away hot dogs. I told him, bring me back a hot dog and I'll believe it. Like five minutes later, he comes back with a hot dog in a bun covered in mustard. And I was just like floored. So we go over and there's this group that had dragged a charcoal grill what all the way up to camp 14 they had a box of hot dog buns from costco it wasn't even like crushed or wet or anything like the buns were full and like regular and they were cooking up hot dogs and handing them out at camp 14 and i'm talking to the guy and he's like he's like yeah you know we got kind of high and then we went to costco and we were thinking like you know summiting is cool but like throwing a throwing a hot dog barbecue at camp 14 we'll never forget that it's like so you 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 jeopardized your summit bid but like on purpose <laughs> on like very very intentionally so that you could give away free hot dogs at, at 14 camp it was awesome <laughs> wow i want to have that guy on the podcast yeah he uh he lives in el dorado springs and you just go knocking door to door until you find him or just sit in the middle you know of like a park there and wait for somebody to offer me a hot dog Oh, man. Pretty funny. 
Wow. I also, you'll, this, so, so you just, you just got to make fun of me for, you know, forgetting the, the Scarpa boot and all that stuff. Yeah. So just, just to rub it in your face a little bit, Jonathan, I got recognized on Denali for my work at Blister, which made me feel like an absolute celebrity. Wow. <laughs> wow. I, I'm praying that it was hot dog party guy that recognized you. It was not hot dog party guy. It was this, we were at the airstrip at the end of the day and we were kind of chatting and uh, we were, this was our last night there. So we were also, also partying a little bit because we, <laughs> turns out we didn't hardly drink. We, we brought a ton of whiskey up there and didn't drink any of it essentially. And then we got to the very end and we're like, we've got five bottles of whiskey. So basically everyone at camp, we had, we had, we had a fun night, but <laughs> we're, we're chatting and, and talking to this guy and I'm like, Oh yeah. You know, like I write gear reviews, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, wait, are you Sam Shaheen? Unreal. <laughs> <laughs> and you're sitting there eating a hot dog, wearing your homemade unicorn nose guard. And you're like, yes, yes, I am. And I'm like, eat your heart out, Jonathan, <laughs> eat your heart out. <laughs> no, Sam, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm delighted you were recognized. No, uh, it was definitely the highlight of, of, of the entire trip. Wow. Well, excellent. Well, I'm glad we've, uh, you know, we've got a little reach out there. Even you get recognized. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, and so how long have you been back from this Denali adventure? I've been back three weeks, I think. Okay. Yeah. Well, some people might not know, right? You, we told this story before that when probably shortly after, like right away, like one of our first conversations ever when you had reached out to us years ago, but you had always said, you know, I really love the ski stuff and the gear stuff and all the rest and apparel, but I would love to work in kind of the biotech or the medical. How does one talk about this industry that you are now in? Biotech, um, biomedically, medically... Yeah, yeah, I think that's 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 more or <laughs> that's less what you accurate. Say? Okay. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. So I've been I've been doing this, doing working with this company DNA Vibe, um, which has been really really cool. We uh, we make an intelligent red light therapy pain manage pain management device. It's it's a wearable device that um, you know I will be totally candid. When I first heard about it, I was like this is totally fake. Like, mm -hmm. there's no way this works. You know, I'm really an evidence-based guy, master's degree in biomedical engineering, all this stuff. Obviously evidence-based. I work, I worked at Blister forever. Um, <laughs> and, uh, man, the, the, the product is amazing, you know, and it's really, really fulfilling. Every day I get emails from people who are like, um, you know, I can, I'm like, thank you so much. I can play with my grandkids cause my knees don't hurt or hmm. I'm able to sleep through the night for the first time because I don't have any numbness in my feet or I just canceled my knee replacement surgery cause I don't have any pain anymore. Hmm. Um, you know, and it's, it's been really rewarding. It's a really challenging role and it's, it, it's, it's been a, a lot of learning, but it's, it's, it's been really great. It's been really great. Well, cool. I don't know if you heard, i blew myself up on a mountain bike eight weeks ago and uh oh no what happened uh doing nothing basically going real fast in a straight line and i yeah uh it's incredibly frustrating because the answer is i don't really know what happened which is turns out is 
more frustrating than when you do know what happened. But anyway, maybe I need to rub your magic uh, DNA red light on my AC joint where I tore all the ligaments in it. <laughs> yeah, no, you really should. Okay. If, if, if it's any consolation though, I also recently had a mountain biking crash. I, I would recommend that no one mountain bikes. It's very <laughs> dangerous. Um. <laughs> well, guess what I'm going to do as soon as we get off this call. Uh, I'm, Are you going to go mountain biking? I am. It's going to be my first. I've been, I've been basically road riding. Uh, I started that like two weeks after the accident. But um, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm, I'm out here in Sun Valley. And I was like, well, I'm here. I should probably sample some of these trails. And so, uh, yeah, I think, uh, I'm going to go get my actual first mountain bike ride in, uh, since that, uh, since that little blow up eight weeks ago. So, oh man, well be safe. <laughs> I'll try. And if I'm not safe, I'm going to come find you and get the old DNA vibe machine. I love, by the way, of course you moved on to a company that literally has the word vibe in the title. No. I know. It makes me so happy. I think about it sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's amazing. Um, well, Sam, as always, pretty entertaining stuff and uh, and actually quite informative. And uh, you and I hadn't really had a chance to catch up about, uh, about Denali. So, I appreciate the debrief. I think a lot of people will be very interested to hear how it all went down for you. And uh and cool to get your thoughts on how some of the gear factored in and all of this as well. So job well done, sounds like. Thank you. Yeah, great, great to chat. And uh, I'm, sure we'll, uh, I'm sure we'll talk again before long. Okay, so you're going to stay off the mountain bike, but um, the people can expect some more ski equipment reviews coming from you. Actually, some maybe when like the next month or two. And, um, yep. and, and then we'll uh, hopefully have you out in the mountains again this coming season and uh, weighing, in on, weighing in on all that uh, backcountry goodness. Yep. You know, I've been trying to quit skiing for a long time, but I don't think it's going to happen this year. So. <laughs> okay. Well, there's a lot of people out there who are actually probably pretty happy about that. So, uh, keep doing it. Glad you and the, and the team made it up and down Denali safe. And uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for sharing the story with us. Absolutely. See ya. Okay. It is time now for our, what we're celebrating this week's segment. It is officially 11, 16 PM on Thursday evening. And I am currently in Ketchum, Idaho for the Sun Valley wine auction, which is a fundraiser for the Sun Valley Museum of the Arts. So I have actually had no whistle pig this week, but I have had a number of incredible wines and I am currently having some Revel Shine red wine. Now, those of you who were at this past blister summit, you certainly know and you had Revel Shine and I've been hanging out with and riding bikes with the founder of Revel Shine, Jake Bilbro. And while Jake is really busy this week with the wine auction, I am still going to try to pin him down for a podcast conversation because he's got a lot of really interesting ideas about ski culture and ski and wine culture and spending time in the mountains. Anyway, but I digress. What I am celebrating this week is number one, being back mountain biking. Man, I am grateful for that, and I had a cool three-hour solo ride tonight exploring more of the terrain around Ketchum. 
And my shoulder's actually feeling okay. A little sore, but okay. So cheers, cheers to that. And as always, I want to raise a glass to getting to spend time with friends and getting to meet new friends. And there's been a whole lot of that going on this week too. Finally, I got to visit Ernest Hemingway's grave yesterday on July 21st, which is actually Hemingway's birthday. This definitely was a pilgrimage for me that has been many, many years in the making. And it was really meaningful to me to get to spend time by myself at his graveside. The Old Man in the Sea is the first book I truly loved. And I kept finding myself hoping that somewhere... Ernest is dreaming of lions. So I raise my glass to being back on the bike, to seeing old friends and new, and yes, to the old man. And that then brings us to the end of this episode of Gear 30. I want to say thanks to Sam for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And from everyone back in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again real soon.